0: Hello, and welcome to the 19th Amendment Speaker Series Podcast, an audio rebroadcast of the Speaker Series presented by the National Association of Women Judges, the Women Lawyers Association of Los Angeles, and the Los Angeles County Bar Association in the summer and fall of 2020. My name is Jennifer Leland, and I am honored to share the powerful conversations between successful, inspirational, and impactful women in entertainment, sports, politics, law, academia, and business. We hope you'll enjoy these great conversations and share them with others. We note that these interviews were recorded before Kamala Harris became the Democratic Vice Presidential nominee and Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. These historical moments would have played a large part in our conversations. Justice Ginsburg's influence on women in the legal profession cannot be understated. In her memory, we share these conversations and pave the way for continued dialogue in service of a more equitable future.
1: Good afternoon and welcome to the 19th Amendment Speaker Series. My name is Amy Yerke. I am a Los Angeles County Superior Court judge and I am very pleased to be moderating today's panel, Reaching for Higher Heights, Expanding Leadership for Women of Color in Politics. I'd like to thank the National Association of Women Judges, the Women Lawyers of Los Angeles, and the Los Angeles County Bar, and all of the supporting organizations that make today's program possible. Most importantly, I'd like to thank my esteemed panelists, Senator Holly Mitchell, and Higher Heights CEO and co-founder, Glinda Carr. We delve into meaningful issues, including the importance of diversity in politics, redefining candidate viability, and creating an environment that encourages women of color to run, succeed, and climb higher. Before we begin, I want to inform our viewers today that this panel was previously recorded Tuesday, August 11th, prior to the groundbreaking announcement that Senator Kamala Harris was selected as the Democratic nominee for vice president. I mention this to give context to our discussion because at the time of this recording, that announcement had not yet been made, and thus we didn't discuss it in detail. All right, without any further delay, let's begin the program. Senator Holly Mitchell has been dubbed by the Los Angeles Times as the moral compass of Congress uh, and the conscience of Congress. Um, a third generation, native and- anthrop-
2: yeah. let me interrupt you. Not Congress, because you'll get me People oh, so of, the, of the legislature. Thank you. Thank you. I apologize.
1: <laughs> that, that's, coming. that's coming. Oh, I don't say that either. <laughs> but forgive me, I apologize. Okay. Um, you're a third-generation native Angelino and the proud daughter of career public servants and the protege of community leaders who instilled in you a passion for service. The mom of a 19-year-old son, you've devoted your professional life to creating a California where all children thrive. You continued your family legacy of leadership when you were named the first African-American to chair the powerful Senate Budget and Fiscal Review Committee. Uh, Your groundbreaking successes include nearly 90 bills signed into law, and after this morning, that number's probably going up, uh, these bills focus on improving human services, expanding access to health care, defending civil rights of minorities, and the undocumented, and reducing the number of children growing up in poverty. In addition to your chairing the Budget and Fiscal Review Committee, you also chair the Senate Select Committee on Social Determinants of Children's Well-Being and the Joint Legislative Budget Committee, and we're so happy to have you this morning. It's
2: great to be with you.
1: Ms. Carr, you are the co-founder of Higher Heights for America and Higher Heights Leadership Fund, political strategist. Higher Heights is the leading national organization dedicated to building Black women's collective political power from the voting booth to the elective office. You are the co-creator of Black Women Lead Movement, which is creating the environment for Black women to vote, run, and lead. You are the former executive director of Education Voters of New York, a leading independent voice for school reform in the state. And prior to that, you were the chief of staff to New York State Senator Kevin Parker, where you also served as campaign manager for two of his successful reelection campaigns. Um, you've also held senior management positions with key national organizations, including the Thoroughgood Marshall Scholarship Fund and the Big Brothers Big Sisters of America. You are a sought-after speaker and trainer, contributed on lots of different major media outlets, including The Root, Ebony.com, The Huffington Post. And in 2018, you were on Essence magazine, uh, their second annual Woke 100 saluting female changemakers. And we are also thrilled to have you with us this morning. So welcome. Great. Thank you. So we're talking about the 19th Amendment. and. Um, on August 18th, a week from today, it'll be the hundredth anniversary that that bill was signed into law. And I think it's important for us to acknowledge that when that initially occurred, it didn't give all women the right to vote. In fact, it wasn't until 45 years later with the Voting Rights Act in 1965, that black women and women of color were given that same equal right. And so I wanna ask each of you, you know, what are some of the ways that this delay has impacted Black women and women of color? Maybe Senator Mitchell, I'll start with you.
2: That's a great question. I think, I think the delay has impacted, you know, our sheer numbers in elected office. I think the delay has impacted our representation in a variety of places, in boardrooms, and the positions of, of power. I think it's also reflected, in many instances, a delay in terms of our needs being met in public policy development. I was on an amazing webinar, I think two Sundays ago, convened by the National Black Women's Health Imperative. I used to work for the Black Women's Health Project 25 years ago. And the founder, Billy Avery, was on with Angela Davis. Ms. Davis said something so powerful, that the health of black women is foundational to democracy. And so I think the delay in our ability to vote has also, the unintended consequence is a delay in our ability to have our needs met in the public policy arena. I think that that really is the crux of the challenge that we're experiencing today where we're playing catch up. When we look at health disparities, the challenge essential workers are currently experiencing in in light of COVID, um, housing rights, any number of issues. I think the delay is a reflection on the impact of the lives of Black women today.
1: Do you have anything that you wanna add to that, Glenda? Of course not, that was good. No, I do.
3: (laughs) (laughs) And so I think it's also, Black women have actually been the architects of these movements, right? And so, You know, the most well-known suffragist is Sojourner Truth, who posed a very important question to a room full of white women that I think is still relevant today as we talk about the women's movement. And she poses the question, and ain't I a woman, right? And her, along with a, you know, a list of unknown Black women who literally sat and built out a strategy and a mobilization engagement plan, knowing that they weren't going to reap the benefits of this amendment, Similar to the civil rights movement, there are, you know, many of the architects that people don't broadly know were Black women sitting at those tables. And at the end of the day, Black women have put more into these movements than we're getting back. So we put more into the democracy than we get back. So Thursday, August 6th was the 55th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act. And then we are, you know, two weeks later, or a week and a half later, commemorating the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment. So it's, you know, it's something of about them both happening at the same time during the backdrop of the 2020 election cycle, where you see, you know, we've saw a record number of women, you know, vie for a Democratic um nominate nation for president. There's a record number of women running for office, there's a record number of women of color, a record number of black women. And so in 2020, I think we have met at the, the crossroads of these two movements, and black women are demanding our return on our voting investment um, in the policies that directly impact. Black women, our families, and our communities. And we are absolutely, certainly claiming seats at decision-making tables. And so I think it is an important, you know, historical timeline to show, as the Senator uh, mentioned, is there was a delay. And that definitely impacts our representation in this democracy and our ability to reap what we sow in this democracy. But this year, As we, you know, have a thousand of these conversations about the 19th Amendment, by the way, that that Black women, it's a history lesson so that people know that Black women were absolutely integral parts. And it's what we always do, right, Senator Mitchell, which is we will do the work, uh, even if we don't get our equal pay, our equal, but no more. Um, We are navigating across this democracy in a different way.
1: So um, Ms. Carr, you mentioned that this year, 2020, there are a record number of women of color and specifically black women who are running for political office. What do you attribute that to?
3: Yeah. And so it's a growing, um, it has it, been a steady increase. Of course, I could do the same shameless plug, um, Senator. Thanks in large part to higher heights. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so it is a couple of things. So black women are still underrepresented in this American democracy as elected officials. So we are about 7.9% of the population. So in 2018, we elected the largest number of uh, Black women serving in Congress. On the 50th anniversary of Shirley Chisholm being elected to that body as the first Black woman to ever serve, right? And, um, but yet and still, we're only 4.3% of congress right 7.9 percent of, of 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 population 4.3 in congress we've only elected two black women to the u.s senate um, in our nation's history uh, and we currently only have one serving um, and so there's a lot of work to be done but there's certainly more women and black women running for office we still unfortunately have to like jump over barriers um, and knock down institutional um, institutional obstacles as candidates. But there's certainly, when you have more Black women run, um, we have proven that we actually are winning um, and winning investment as candidates. Uh, um, and so we see women running on the local level, but frankly, more women running um, for for Congress and running for statewide office. But there's still work to be done to recruit, train, and support Black women because uh, there's still a question around our electability and sometimes our likability. And a lot of this is around culture shift. Um, And so Higher Heights does spend a lot of time around how do you shape the narrative and create the environment for Black women to vote, run, win, and lead. And we're running in what people would perceive as historically not districts you would see black women running. You know, black women, if a white man can represent me, certainly a qualified black woman can represent a broader electorate. And we've seen that out of the five black women that were elected in Congress in 2018, four of them represent districts that are majority white districts.
1: Is, is Cori Bush one of your success stories?
3: She is uh, one of the success stories of 2020, um, and what is great about her is that um, you know, she's a nurse, so at the end of the day, we always celebrate Black women running. Uh, and winning. But what's more importantly is the lived experiences that they bring to these decision making tables and their qualifications. And so that is what we're going to see, I think, in 2020 when these women win in the general election. We will see the same thing we saw in 18. So I'll use 18 as an example because it ha- already happened. We sent five black women, but more importantly, we sent a nurse. And a public health professional, Lauren Underwood. We sent a teacher, but not just a teacher, but the 2016 Teacher of the Year, Johanna Hayes. We sent a city council member, Ayana Presley. Um, we sent a state um, legislator and a Somalian refugee, Ilhan Omar, and we sent a mother of a slain black boy. Those five black women, including the women that hope to um, meet them in Congress in January, bring unique Experiences to a decision making table when we are talking about a global health pandemic, a down to not even, a, even an explosion of our economy, and a discussion around. Um, gun violence that is racially motivated, those five black freshmen, black women, bring those experiences to the table. And, and I think we've seen them lead boldly, but frankly, we've seen um, black women on the state um, state level, like Senator Mitchell, bring her background and unique experiences in a way that then creates these you know innovative bills and not just bills, but um, pieces of legislation that are enacted so that everyday black women, you know, can live in economically thriving, educated, healthy, and safe communities.
2: Amy, can I comment as well? Please. Just because I want to put a context for your bar members who are in California, because the challenge in California is we have sent amazing black women to Congress. Someone told me recently, and, and Glenda, you can correct me if I've got it wrong, but I think, you know, since like 2000, every member that we've sent to Congress has been a black woman, quite frankly. And the challenge with that is. We don't have a bench. In LA County, there are no black women on the Board of Supervisors, City Council, School Board, or Community College District. I am the fourth black woman since statehood, 1849, to serve in the California State Senate. While it is wonderful, our congressional numbers are great, that we've had, you know, both of our US senators are female, one black. We are doing well at the federal level, my concern always is building the bitch, which is why I support Higher Heights and, and other organizations that are recruiting, training, and encouraging um, women to run, and in the instance of Higher Heights, Black women to run for office. That has always been my concern for years. There was a month, point in time in the California legislature, as a result of term limits, where there were no Black women serving.
0: Uh-huh.
2: Almost a decade of that, because the Black women who turned out, most of whom went to Congress, were replaced by Black men and there was no bench. Uh, Karen Bass was elected and for a number of years served as the only. Uh, Currently we are four, three in the assembly, one um, myself in the Senate. And so as we talk about these issues, we've got to make sure that we are building the bench and the pipeline. Now, many of the women, Glenda talked about, running for Congress was their first seat, that is great. And I agree, I think we bring Um, diversity and diversity experience based on our professional background as well as our lived experiences. But I also want to make sure that we are preparing women to confront the issues of a campaign, which is, you know, different for us as women and different for me as a Black woman. You know, the fundraising element, all of that to make sure that we are preparing women to be as successful as they can be to serve in public office.
1: So let's go with that. So I'll I'll ask both of you, and and Holly, if I can turn it back to you. How do we do that? I mean, if you can tell us a little bit about what your own path was like, and from those experiences, how do you think we can pave the way for more black women to be interested in it and to be successful at it?
2: Great question. And I think it requires that we think creatively and differently about the path. You know, I think the typical path still is, you know, former staffer. Your boss turns out or retires, you run for the seat. And that happens, you know, all over. That happened with me uh, when I made my transition from the Assembly to the Senate. Um, uh, after one member served for a of time, my district director is now the Assembly member. Assembly member Sidney Camlonger represents the 54th Assembly District. And so that was about me as my former boss, State Senator Diane Watson, always uses the term lifting as we climb. I think it's important for women to make sure that they bring women behind them particularly in a term-limited environment. Um, But you know, it's that track, but it's also thinking creatively about really what constitutes a viable, thoughtful, strategic policy-making body and its diverse backgrounds. You know, gone are the day that you go to law school, you run for office. You know, I serve now in the California State Senate with more um, cattle farmers and school teachers and um, uh, um, print shop owners. Than you know, probably ever before, and that diversity of perspective I think is critical. So, I was running a large nonprofit organization, Crystal Stairs. Mm. We facilitated care to about 25,000 families a day. I was running a large organization, 500 employees, 500 million dollar budget. And so, when you think about the skills that I brought with me that have uh, allowed me to build an effective and efficient team, because that's how I got. Uh, 90 bills out of 118 introduced, signed into law, is because of my team. And that's my team-building leadership experience of running a large organization. So I think we have to think creatively about the skill sets that can translate into a policymaking um, body. And, you know, when I ran in 2010, uh, I think that there were a number of, you know, kind of king and queen makers who thought, oh, holy Yeah. She runs an amazing nonprofit organization. You know, we call on her all the time for her policy level uh, expertise, but, huh, running for office. And so sometimes you have a little sneak attack that there are women who have the capacity um, who just need the support. Um, And so figuring out how we create those opportunities. Uh, You know, Diane, for me, I went to work for her right out of my Coral Foundation Fellowship at 22, and she was an open book. Asked me what kind of policy I- issues interest you, and just gave me complete carte blanche. You know, introduced me to people. I understood the process. You know, fundraising continues to be that horrible boogeyman in the room. Um, I think more so for women and women of color. Um, and figuring out how you translate your work and life experience into a database that you can tap to support you to run for office is really important. And and walking Black women through that so you can see it um, and see yourself in it,
1: I think is critically important. And and that's essentially your role. Is that right, Gwenda?
3: Yes, I mean, it's a couple of pieces that I agree with the senator. It is one creating the environment and pushing the structure, the infrastructure to recognize the importance of recruiting women and women of color and black women in particular, oftentimes, you know, our our work with the Center for American Women in Politics Research points to that women are not encouraged to run for office and frankly, black women are actively discouraged from running for office, right? Oftentimes women don't know how to navigate the politics and part of the reason why we don't know how to navigate the politics, it wasn't necessarily built for women. Right. And women of color. And what you continue to see, but women have persisted, particularly since 16, 2017 election, 2018, 19 and 20, have seen a record number of women run on the local level all the way up to the federal level. But at the end of the day, oftentimes women of color in particular don't get the the party support, like the institutional support. So party support or the king and queen maker types of support. So those early endorsements for the organization that signal that these women are viable and electable. I absolutely, it's gotten better. Um, and I think part of the reason why it's gotten better with early support is these women have proven that they can run on a shoestring budget. <laughs> And with um, smaller staffs than their male counterparts and actually still persist and frankly blow them away on election day. And so these women have just been able to just put their head down, do the work and then be, you know, and I think they're great. I always call it like I know I'm not um, primed to be an elected official or run for office because I'd be the petty girl, petty patty. So at the end of the day, like when they win, I was like, see, I would still be petty. Like, if you remember revisionist history, you didn't support me. But these women have been gracious. uh, And so it is still the notion of the infrastructure piece. But the second um, piece of it is, at the end of the day, having the extra skills. And so organizations like Higher Heights, Emerge, Vote, Run, Lead, there's a variety of organizations that focus on women, that focus on women of color, that focus on Black women, the new um, American Leaders Project that um, focus on first-generation American-born children of immigrants and immigrants who um, are thinking about running for office. All these training programs give the skill set, but also provide that environment in that network for them to be able to mount successful campaigns. And I think the
2: next generation and what, Glenda, you and I have to build is once elected, how to navigate the politics of service and how to get into leadership. You know, that's critical. I have the privilege of serving uh, under California's first woman president pro tem of the Senate. You know, I'm a member of the leadership team as chair of the budget committee. Um, But that's the next piece, because once elected, We want to be as effective as possible, be able to leverage, quite frankly, uh, your bully pulpit and your power to bring resources back to your community and to be in a position to help become a a junior king or queen maker to help identify the next generation of candidates. The other piece I would add is, you know, it's our responsibility to redefine viability. I think I challenge that. I had to challenge the notion myself of what, what a viable candidate looked like you know, uh, running a large nonprofit, I could raise money all day for my organization, but how to translate that into asking people to invest in me. And in my own mind, internalizing what that return on investment would be. And that is an ongoing process to be able to continue to be in a position of power to raise money, to be comfortable in terms of the source and kind of money you raise. I, for example, don't take oil money, tobacco money, and in the race I'm in currently and not taking money from police unions. And so really being able to show women you can do it, you can do it your way, and to help them navigate the politics of now I'm elected and I serve, you know, how do I make transitions and, and, and make moves and make money moves uh, to be in a position of power? That's the other element that that sometimes goes unspoken. There's a lot of energy to getting women elected. And then it's a little like your whoops, the famous movie with the final scene when he's elected president. It's a little Manchurian candidate dynamic. Now I'm elected. Now who's here to support wow. me to continue to show me the roads? And, and the having more women elected creates a stronger uh, women's caucus, if you will, because that's then when we come in and we can become mentors to women to help them navigate the the travails
1: of public service and public life. Something else that I think you've both touched on is uh, the likability penalty that that women face, and it's especially harder for women of color. And I feel like it's front and center in the news right now with Joe Biden's vice presidential pick, where we see people like um, Kamala Harris and Stacey Abrams being criticized for being too ambitious, or Susan Rice being criticized for smiling. And it's this idea that women need to be liked in order to be successful, but they can't be too successful in order to be liked. And some women, you know, particularly white women can navigate around that a little bit by, you know, um, I saw an article yesterday that gave the examples of, well, you can win the debate, but then you apologize later, or you negotiate, but you smile while you're negotiating. And, and how those at least this theory of this article said that those tools maybe aren't necessarily available to Black women. So it's this even more difficult conundrum. And so what are your thoughts on that?
3: It's exhausting, particularly this notion around ambition,
1: right? And so
3: you actually want leaders that are ambitious, right? And it's not even just elected leaders. Um, It is a trait that has been a um, positive trait for our C-suite executives (laughs) to our elected leaders, as long as they're white men. And so being able to now weaponize something that was an a, um, a positive attribute because that leader happens to be a woman and a Black woman, it's frustrating. And one of the things that I think we need to do as women and then encourage our counterparts is to actually continue to call that out. I'm being nice. I've been saying this to reporters, may it be unconscious or conscious <laughs> biases that we need to call that out. Like I'm giving them the grace that it might be unconscious, you know. But <laughs> It is the, what does leadership look like? And at the end of the day, you know, a lot of this is that the face of leadership is changing, what type of leadership it is. And so there is some pushback to what the new generation of leaders, what type of experience we are, what we look like and who we are. Um, and so some of this is just that backlash of recognizing, as I said, that the historical perception of what a leader looks like, white, male and older is at the brink of like extinction right and so i think some of this is that <laughs> that <laughs> there, there is a defense mechanism of them recognizing that you know they are may being retired to you know a drastic world versus <laughs> the notion of i frankly think there's an electorate that we we do want diverse diversity but some of our leaders actually have to pivot and to meet that moment, and, and, and frankly, where, where women have run in up against 20-year incumbents in, in one is that that leader hasn't been able to pivot to address their changing demographics and needs of their constituencies. And these women literally, it's just like the, the strategy of these women have like successfully started to retire some of these but, but we have to as women, I catch myself sometimes. I, mean, I think we all catch ourselves. We were just talking before we went live about like, oh, I, don't, I didn't have any lipstick on because it's something that my, my mother would say. And I find myself sometimes like women will sit, y'all know we do this, and we will critique hair. What we're wearing, I mean, there's a whole conversation around AOC, Andrea Cortez, right? And about her, you know, she decided to lean in, like she liked to wear red lipstick, right? And so there's this whole notion around what does red lipstick mean for a Latina and a young Latina? And so she leaned in like, I like to wear l- red lipstick, and I'm going to like embrace the boldness of that. Um, and so we, as women, have to be con- conscious of our unconscious or conscious biases towards women. It's been a long history of culture around where we think our place is, and, and we are part of reshaping the attributes and the, con- and the characteristics and the way women show up in leadership. And that is OK for us to show up. Like, the reason why we're cutting through is we are showing up, particularly the Black woman and our full authentic selves, right? And I would love to hear um, Holly talking about that. I mean, we both wear locks. Um, and that—that that is, you know, at one point, it, that is edgy back in the day. <laughs> it's not so much. But the whole notion of what makes us uh, successful is that we show up um, many times, many groups in the past would be like, stop wearing, you know, hoop, Like a lot of stuff around the way we look. I know the LA Times did an article around the VP, VP pick, last week, I think, talked about it as the final rose of The Bachelor. Like, you just would not do that if we were talking about the final four of uh, a VP pick, if it was men,
2: Never. It would never occur to anybody to do that. You just wouldn't. So I agree with everything, you know, Glenda said. Uh, I have the privilege of serving as a legislator-in-residence at uh, Mount St. Mary's College. Uh, it's actually in one of the campuses in my district, in West Adam, their Doheny campus. And I put together just a literal video montage of images to help challenge the students and, and everybody's perspective of what a leader looks like. So this video montage has a Girl Scout troop and kind of you can see the one kind of Girl Scout in the front kind of talking. It, it has um, um, Jim Jones. It has the Dalai Lama. It, uh, just a variety of images it, it has a Klansman. It has a Black Lives Matter protest where you see one person kind of in the front with her fist in the air. It has the famous picture of the, the student standing in front of the tank in Tiananmen Square. It just, it, it's a video piece, and I just opened up a conversation about what pictures reflected a leader to you. And it's not just a man in a suit behind a podium. So I think we really have to challenge ourselves, as Glenda said, and, and, and women can be the worst enemy of another woman um, to really put, and we saw that in the Hillary Clinton campaign in terms of the pantsuit conversation. And we focus more on women's candidate, women candidates, what they look like, what they wear. My colleagues, my male colleagues in the campaign trail can go from morning precinct walking to full day of activities, to a black tie event in the same suit. And if I were to show up at the black tie event with the same thing I had on camp precinct walking, you would hear the audible gasp in the room. And so it's a different expectation for women. But from my perspective, we have to push that. My mere presence showing up as I appear to you today on the campaign trail in 2010, um, nationwide as we researched and looked was kind of groundbreaking. I have been locked for, it will be 16 years uh, in September for my birthday, I locked for my 40th birthday. I knew when I made the decision that it would be perceived as a political and social act, either of defiance or self pride. I knew that that's how it'd be perceived externally. And I locked, you know, a number of years before I decided to run for office. But my key decision when I decided and chose to become a candidate was that my hair was off limits. That it was not uh, up for negotiation among the, the strategists and the campaign consultant world, which is largely a white male dominated industry in and of itself. And so my showing up, the Women's Caucus had a woman come in to talk to us a number of years ago about presentation and everything. And so I couldn't believe it. I sat there and she started. She's a college professor and she started. You might want to not wear, you know, kind of the, 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 you know, the gold hoop earrings or, or the larger jewelry or, or be or bright colors and too audacious. So I had to stand up and tell her I am a now middle aged mid career, six foot tall black woman. And so when I show up, I'm going to be noticed anyway. And we have to show up as we are most comfortable. And so I didn't choose to start wearing flesh-colored pantyhose and tailored suits every day. That is a part of who I am and a part of the spectrum of what's reflected in my overabundant closet. (laughs) Um, But that's not how I was going to be merely defined as a candidate or as an elected official. And so we have to have those conversations and push the envelope. And as candidates, make sure that women are showing up in a variety of ways, because that will then normalize it. Hopefully in the next decade, we won't continue to have conversations about women wearing, you know, um, muted tones and a single strand of pearls versus an ethnic neck piece or any of those things. I hope, I want us to get beyond that. And in order to do it, people have to take a risk and try and try. Uh, I was elected that first election and have been elected with pretty significant margins ever since.
1: And, and we talked a little bit about, you know, changing the culture. And so it seems like the law that you had passed Crown Day kind of feeds, you know, right into that. I, I don't know if you want to talk about that a little bit.
2: Well, you know, that even goes beyond elected life. That really is talking about the core culture of how Black people are perceived Um, And what, you know, uh, uh, anti-Black policies, workplace dress codes, school place dress codes, and how it was normalized. You know, I, as a result of introducing Senate Bill 188, the Crown Act, can't go into a public place if people recognize me and associate me with the bill, that someone doesn't come up and tell me a personal story. From the courtroom to the law firm all the water cooler kind of conversations that even if your workplace didn't have a overt policy that prevented you from wearing your hair in its natural state, but just, you know, the, the fact that people would be comfortable enough to approach you and say, you know, I really liked your hair better the other way. And people telling stories about um, having job offers rescinded of not being promoted, of black girls being suspended from school at record rates at a disproportionate rate compared to their population generally because of these policies that determined that there was something negative, distracting, or inappropriate about how we present. And so I thought it was most appropriate as a policymaker uh, who wears her hair in its natural state for me to be the one to say there is nothing unprofessional about how I present when I chair the budget committee for the fifth largest economy in the world. So to be able to put it in that context, I, I felt very strongly about. Uh, there are now seven additional states. There are two bills that have been introduced in Congress, and so we're hoping that it is federal law. And, and the point is, it's not just about hair, so it, it shouldn't be trivialized. It's about being seen and presenting in my unique my unique opportunity to present as a Black woman that I carry with great pride
1: and to be accepted for that. So if you, each of you had to offer some advice to women, and particularly women of color who were interested in running for political office, what would you tell them?
3: A couple of things. So, I mean, I think it is the, you you know, the first primary you have to win is actually a primary of self, right? You know, you can't, people may be, I have, a, you know, people wanting you to, to run for something that you may not be interested in running. If you actually don't run your own own primary, I'll let the Senator talk about, it, it is a long, hard road, road to run for office, right? And particularly being a woman of color, a Black woman, when you may be one of only or a few handfuls. So if you don't actually center and be prepared yourself to determine how you want to show up as an elected leader and how you, you are uniquely positioned and designed to use your background and expertise at that decision-making tables. I would say that's number one. Number two then is obviously ensuring that your um, immediate family is on board. After that, you have actually, most women have absolutely everything they need <laughs> to run for office. We feel like we have to be more trained and more prepared than our male counterparts. Most men don't go through training programs. There's not a thousands of training programs. Now, do I think training programs actually make us better leaders? Yes, but like, like Senator Mitchell, like what? Name a black, name a man, a male training program.
2: Uh, and the president just woke up one day and said, I think I want to be president of the free world. And <laughs> he is. And most
3: men, I use it, most men have made a plan from how they're going to run and become the first cat, cat catcher, dog, dog catcher to president. There's research that usually shows that women run for office and they actually don't have a plan. They run for their current office. And so when you start talking about pipeline work, it's because oftentimes we're not thinking through next steps where our male counterparts are. So I do believe, I mean, obviously we do trainings. I do believe in training. So if you are just thinking about it and you don't even want to like let your like your family, like you're still just trying to figure it out. One, there's a ton of amazing books out here. I think one of the best books is, is um, Stacey Abrams, um, Leaving from the Outside. And it literally gives a journey about her life and how she's mapped out her life's plan. Um, so I think there's some like quiet reading or listening you can do, because I listen to books on tape. The other piece is we purposely do online training um, for Black women, because, again, the research points to that Black women are actively discouraged from running for office. So um, sometimes, you know, when we were able to go outside <laughs> before COVID, it is just a challenge, like it's a barrier of just thinking, I'm going to go sit in a physical training where people might see me. Right. So in the early stages of when you're thinking about it, so being able to take advantage of all of this online training where you can quietly sit, you know, in a corner in your house and and invest in an hour or two or, or three. Um, just learning and being in community with other women, I think is, is not only empowering, but it allows you to start sketching out what you think this looks like. And at the end of the day, not everybody has to run for office. So one of the things you also need to determine is like, what do you want your impact to be? And does that position that you're thinking about Actually allows you to make the impact. Sometimes we run for offices, and it's a mismatch of what we actually want to do. Like city, there's a difference between city government, um, county, you know, county government, um, state, and national. Um, work. So figuring out what you want to do, you may find out that your highest use of your your time and your energy is actually not being an elected official. It may be that you're being an advocate or, you know, joining a, an organization. And I would say join organizations and be with like-minded folk. But at the end of the day, you know, we all actually have everything we need. If this is what you're supposed to be doing, you have it. And then it's surrounding yourself and building a plan and executing it. And guess what? If you run and you lose, dust yourself back up again and run again. Because again, our, our, particularly our white male counterparts will reinvent themselves multiple times. Oftentimes we lose a lot of stellar leadership because once women lose, they don't run again.
1: How about you, Senator Mitchell?
3: You know, I agree with everything Glenda said.
2: I would say that I don't think people invest enough time in the pre-work. The pre-work is why i want to run what i want to accomplish and what level of government serves that goal uh, people will come to me and say you know i want to be the elected official so my question is like why because um, it can't just be about the title because it's just not that glamorous and sexy it's just not and so you have to make sure that that it's going to feed you in a meaningful way for you to be able to withstand um, um the drama The the, the ebbs and flows, the ups and downs. It really has to, in my humble opinion, be feeding you for you to be in a position to give your best for the electorate that you represent. And so you got to do your pre-work. I encourage people to do informational interviews. Um, uh, I I meet people, you know, will you be my mentor? Let's have a conversation first because I'm not sure that I'm the best match for you. And so I'll encourage them, call my scheduler. Let's set up some phone time. So whether I'm in LA in the district or in Sacramento, we can connect. Thanks to the way we're living now, Zoom, I've done about a dozen Zoom conversations just in the last four or five months of women who, you know, have been encouraged by what they're experiencing in their communities and in our country and want to run. And So I encourage them to do the pre-work, figure out the level of government whose jurisdiction um, it is that your policy areas of interest fit into. Because I did my pre-work, I can say unequivocally to people, I will never run for city council, ever, never, ever. And and some of the king and queen makers will say, well, you don't say ever. See, my goal wasn't to be an elected. My goal was to be in a position of power and authority to affect policy change, to influence the budget outcomes for my community. Um, The areas that are important to me fall in, quite frankly, two levels of government, state and the county. And so whether it's a seat open, whether people are moving the, 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 the pieces on the chessboard, well, if this person goes here, Holly, you'll fit in there. If Holly fitting in there doesn't feed me, Holly's not going there. I tell people all the time, there is integrity in work. I'm working class. When I leave public office, I will have to work again, and there's, that's not a bad thing. Sometimes men get this notion that once elected, they must always be elected, and therefore look for seats Mm. in order to run. And I encourage women not to do that. Make sure you are feeding your own soul. In addition to the pre-work, it's really putting together your support network. As Glenda said, talk to your family. My son, who turned 20 last week, was eight when I was sitting in a budget hearing, saw what the California legislature was about to do. Uh, to poor families and working class families by basically uh, dismantling our subsidized child care industry. And I sat in a budget hearing and got mad enough to run. Then I had to go back and begin to do my pre-work, figure out the impact it was going to have on my son. I looked nationwide at that point, because there was no example in the California legislature of a single working woman with a school-aged child, um, I will share that I'm an adoptive parent. I only share that to say that, you know, that there wasn't a ex-husband or a, a partner or an ex-spouse or anyone to help me with my child rearing. I had to factor in how I was going to do that. You know, um, now in the legislature, there are a number of women who have school age children, and I got to tell you, the first door they came to knock on once they got elected was mine. How did you do this? How did you create a balance for your family and be true to the needs of your constituents? And I am more than willing always to share my path and acknowledge that that was the path I had to create because I couldn't find a model and you'll have to figure out what works best for you. But it's very different from our male counterparts who leave their districts and their families, come to Sacramento solo, have the opportunity to focus on their work and then go back home on Thursdays Uh, to a partner or wife who's maintained the house and handled all the business while they were gone. That's not my reality. Um, And so I am always very transparent and clear because I want women to understand the life they are choosing because I don't want to set them up for failure. Um, And those are the kinds of issues that, that, that women, Black women, working class women... Um, really have to factor. You have to figure out your money. You have to figure out how you are going to be able to survive, you know, during that campaign period. So that the, that's the pre-work before you say out loud for the first time, which is I can't tell you how scary it is to look someone in the eye and say, "My name is Holly Mitchell and I'm running for X office." Before you get to that point, you have to do your pre-work. So so your own constitution is ready for all that's going to come at you, and towards you, and
1: for you. So if I can ask one follow-up on that, can you tell us about your path? Because right now, you're running for LA County Supervisor, is that correct? Yes, I am. And so, um, I mean, you've had an amazingly successful career in the California State Senate. Can you tell us, you know, what led you to decide to run, you know, or what you hope to accomplish as a your elected supervisor.
2: Supervisors, you know, L.A. County uh, Board of Supervisors is, some would argue, the most powerful elected body in the country by virtue of the size of L.A. County and the size of the district. As a California state senator, my current district uh, includes one million California residents. The Board of Supervisors, <laughs> each seat represents two million L.A. County residents, a county of 10 million people. That's five members of the board. Um, and so the sheer kind of scope and responsibility of representing a district of that size is significant. It's got uh, uh, 88 cities in, in L.A. County. And so when you just think about kind of the scope of work, you know, the county government is the safety net. And so uh, so many of the critical programs uh, that government provides to keep the bottom from falling out for families land at the county area. Those are the issues that are most important to me. Those are the issues that compelled me to run for state legislature and the issues I've focused my 10 year career now in the state legislature in terms of poverty alleviation in terms of lifting children particularly up out of deep poverty criminal and juvenile justice right-sizing the whole new reform movement that's taking over this country recognizing LA County has the largest county jail system Uh, LA County is the place where I can now work to at the local level, really operationalized many of the policies that I've spent a decade working on. Um, and it's my home county and the district that I was born and raised. I'm a third-generation Native Angelino. The irony is my parents met as eligibility workers working for the Department of Child and Family Services. So for me, it's coming full circle um, to come back home full-time to my county and bring my budget expertise and my policy expertise and my community-based commitment um, to a community, particularly now post-COVID, that needs courageous, fearless leadership. That's why I decided to run.
1: Well, we wish you all the best in that. So I, I think we're coming to the end. So I'm going to um, throw out one last question. And um, Glenda, if I can start with you. So uh, at the beginning, we talked about how Black women were really at the heart of women's suffrage. And I think, to, at least what I've read in history, is that you know they made a decision Even though we know we might not get the right to vote right away, we're still going to help with the cause. So for those of us today who have this privilege, thank you, and and want to help now return the favor and support Black women getting elected into office and diversity that we so desperately need throughout all levels of government. You know, how, how can we do that? We have to do a couple of things. Um, so we have to imagine
3: an America that we can believe in. In America that that at least I know I can believe in is that I see a reflective democracy, um, and that we center the issues of all Americans. As I mentioned, you know, Black women in 2020 are demanding our return on our voting investment. I can't put more, continue to put more into this democracy than I get back for me, my family, and um, my community. You know, Black women, at the end of the day, are at the bottom of every economic, health, and social indicator in this country. COVID-19 has allowed a broader um, the broader American electorate to see how black women boldly lead. In 2014, there were only two black women elected and serving as mayors of top 100 cities. We now have seven. So the whole America are thanking all of this, this bold leadership from London Bree being, you know, the, well, California was a leader in encouraging people to stay, like stay at home orders and London Bree being one of the first major city mayors to, to do a stay at home order. Um, so we can't continue to be like, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, we see you, that's great leadership, and then not want to expand that leadership. And then, like I said, at the end of the day, my, my best friends, my my fam- the women in my family, we want economically thriving, educated, and healthy, safe communities. And we believe that we are not only the architects of that as voters, but we're the architects of building that as elected leaders. And so I would encourage people to, you know, encourage Black women and women of color to run for office. But if you're going to do that, the first thing you then need to do is open up your purse and financially support her, and support her with your time, talents, and treasure. So we can all volunteer. I mean, with COVID nineteen, being able to volunteer, you can volunteer from anywhere. You know, this Sunday, I you know participated in a phone bank for a candidate that was halfway across the country. And so I think we can all do that. Like find a candidate or an organization that inspires you, and in, um, to invest your political capita in that. And that political capita is money. It's your voice. You know, research point too, that particularly Black women are major influencers. We're the best messengers, not only because we're looking to see what Beyonce has to say, but we're actually looking at my friend, you know, Tasha, what she's saying on our social media. So use your social platforms to um, advance women's political leadership. And like I said, volunteer. We may not be knocking on doors, but we certainly can make phone calls and texts and encourage our communities to support these candidates. And at the end of the day, in the November election, you will have a woman, that will be a running mate to the Democratic nominee. We hope that it's a Black woman and so that we all have a role to play for those who want to, to make history with electing, you know, helping to elect something like first Black woman, but first woman and or Black woman as Vice President of the United States.
1: How about you, Senator Mitchell?
2: You know, I appreciate you including in my introduction the reference that the LA Times has made of me being the moral conscious of the legislature. And they were quoting a former sitting colleague who referred to me in that way, which gives me a great sense of pride, um, because as a sitting colleague, he saw me, he heard me, and, and understood my motivations and my goal. And so I think it's, it's a true high honor that I work hard to live up to every day. But what that also said was, you know, he wasn't afraid of my leadership. He wasn't afraid of perceiving me as a leader and respected what I brought to the table. So I would say to the world, don't be scared. We have value. We have a perspective. We have a life experience that can be valuable to you, even as I represent you, if you don't look like me. And I think that's really important to communicate, uh, particularly when you consider Um, the negative images and connotations around Black women, you know, the angry Black woman whatever the case is. I have a skill set to fight for your children in public school, too. And so I would make that statement. I agree with what Glenda said, write checks. We have to put our money where our mouth is and volunteer. When I was first running, my son was eight in elementary school, and a fellow PTA mom, Jana Payne, walked up to me and said, I've never known anybody to run for office and I'm not really sure what I could do to help you, but I see you coming in here on two wheels most evening trying to get him before the after school care cutoff. How about I bring him home from school every day? And I fill up when I recount and tell that story. Because that was a woman who said, I've never been involved in an election campaign, I don't know, but she was a woman who saw another woman and identify a need that I couldn't yet even articulate. And that was worth far more, quite frankly, than those initial max out checks I received in that campaign. And so figure out a way, even on a very personal level, that you could support another woman running for office. Another long-term friend said, I was complaining about, I can't even get to the dry cleaner before they close to pick up my dry cleaning. They found me a dry cleaner that delivered. And so figure out a way on a deeply personal way. If you happen to be fortunate enough to be a friend of or know a woman that's running, to figure out what you can do to support her, the person, because those are the things that overwhelm us typically in everyday life but are compounded when you've added this extra element to your life. I was working full-time, CEO of an organization. I was parenting, sandwich generation. I was caring, you know, providing for my elderly mother as well as taking care of my son. And added to that, I was a candidate for the state assembly. So I really want people to think about, even if it's just not criticizing the woman because she has the same pantsuit on that you saw at right at the last fundraiser, just to be thoughtful about what it takes for a woman to be courageous enough for a black woman given our history and all we experience each and every day with the microaggressions and otherwise, to be able to stand up and put herself in the public domain uh, and say, uh, I'm gonna run for office, and when I do, i want to represent you to the best of my ability. We have to figure out how to support her, encourage her, and give her the respect she's due for just having that level of courage.
1: I think that's a great note to end on, that we need to support each other in whatever way we can. Senator Mitchell, Glenda Carr, it has been an unbelievable pleasure for me to be with you. Thank you so much for your time today. Good luck in the November election, to both of you, really. (laughs) And Amy, thank you so much for convening us
2: and creating this platform for us to have this really powerful conversation. I appreciate you. Yeah, thank
1: you. Likewise, thank you so much.
0: We hope you enjoyed this discussion. Please subscribe to receive future episodes and please share with colleagues and loved ones. You can learn more about this series at lacba.org slash podcasts. Thank you to the planning committee. The Honorable Nicole Bershon, the Honorable Michelle Williams Court, Julie Gurchick, a partner at Glazer Weil LLP, the Honorable Samantha Jessner, the Honorable Serena Murillo, the Honorable Elizabeth White, and the Honorable Amy Yerke. We are grateful to Cecilia Gomez and Tom Walsh from LACPA for their hard work supporting the speaker series and to Lynn Florin for producing the podcast.